recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogany Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 17th, 2013, and we will continue our presentation on the Book of Acts. This is our fifth installment on the Book of Acts, and we are, we are not quite through Chapter 2. We will get there tonight. To this point in Chapter 2 of Acts, we have seen that the outpouring of the Spirit which occurred at this first Pentecost was in fulfillment of the prophecy found in Joel chapter 2, which Peter quotes. However, it was also the beginning of a fulfillment of a prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 44, where Yahweh says to the dispersed children of Israel, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. Furthermore, it was the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy found in Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones, where it says in part, then he said unto me, Prophecy under the wind. Prophecy, son of man, referring to Ezekiel. And say to the wind, Thus saith Yahweh God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. The children of Israel are the slain, because they were under the penalty of death in the law when Yahweh cast them off from his presence, the sin being adultery, in their idolatry, in their fornication. Of course, all these things were only promised to the children of Israel and cannot be applied outside of that context with any justice. We have also seen that this deposit of the Spirit at the first Pentecost and thereafter was only a beginning, a deposit, as Paul called it, and the early rain which James referred to. Now we await the fulfillment, the redemption of our bodies. The later rain that brings the fruit to its perfection. We have presented one contention with the standard translations where we have explained our reading of verse 21. That it shall be that all who shall be called by the name of Yahweh shall be preserved. Presenting this chapter in, in its first segment, we called upon many scriptural witnesses that explained the Greek grammar in defense of this reading. For Yahweh had placed his name upon the children of Israel, and all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. True Christians need to understand that and treat all of their Israelite brethren accordingly. A belief in salvation by works, rather than by the mercy of God, is a denial of Christ. And a belief that a man can save his own soul by his own hand. It's a denial of the sovereignty of Yahweh our God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. For another foundation, no one is able to place besides that which is established, which is Yahshua Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it, because in fire it is revealed. And of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. If the work of anyone who is built remains, he shall receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, if you've done nothing good your whole life, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be preserved, although consequently through fire. As Joshua Christ told us in his gospel, where the woman anointed his feet, her many sins are forgiven because she loves much, but to whom little is forgiven loves little. We have also seen that the gift of tongues was a, was a fulfillment of prophecy, namely Isaiah 28.11, which Paul cites in a discussion on the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14.21, where he says, In the law it is written, referring to Isaiah 28.11. With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith Yahweh. Paul cites this passage to demonstrate the reason why the gift of tongues was dispensed by the Holy Spirit at that time. Now that time has passed, and once the apostles had spread the gospel and Israel, or at least Sufficient portions of Israel had received it. The gift of tongues was no longer necessary. Regardless of what the organized so-called churches have taught, ever since our Israelite people heard the gospel and learned of the new covenant in Christ, we have been under a different commission from God. That found an association with the promise of that new covenant, which is explicitly given at Jeremiah 31:34, where it says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh. For they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So we see that the organized so-called churches have not properly understood the Christian commission. The day which all Christians should be waiting upon now is the day of Yahweh's vengeance, which is described by Malachi in the fourth chapter of his prophecy. For behold, the day comes that shall burn us up as an oven, and all the proud, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day to come shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Any Christian ministry which thinks it has a legitimate message should therefore be bearing that same message promised by Yahweh God of his return of the end times in that same prophecy where it says, Behold, Malachi 4.5, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, 
lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Only identity Christians bear that message in concert with what is found in the New Covenant concerning the New Covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. And also what is found concerning the fishers and hunters in Jeremiah chapter 16. Verse 16. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. The gift of tongues was for the period of the fishers. The period of the hunters requires a different gift. With this, we shall commence with our presentation of Acts, where we left off in chapter 2. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Chapter 2, verse 42. And they were firmly adhering to the teaching of the ambassadors, or the apostles, and in the fellowship, the King James gets it right here. In the breaking of bread and in prayers, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs came through the ambassadors, and all those believing were in the same place and held all things in common. To the end of verse 43, a couple of translation notes here, the Codices Sinaiticus Alexandrinus and Ephraim Siri add the phrase, in Jerusalem, and there was great fear upon all. And where the sentence would not end in a word rendered and, which begins verse 44, would of course be rendered as then, either translation being appropriate. The text of the Christogenian New Testament in this instance agrees with the Codex Vaticanus and the majority text. The Codex Beze also agrees, although that manuscript adds the words in Jerusalem in the middle of verse 42. Acts 2.45. And possessions and belongings, they sold and distributed them, meaning the price of them after they sold them, to all just as anyone had need. The words katema, number 29.33, translated possessions here, and hoop-arxis, 5223, translated belongings, are actually synonyms, very close synonyms. And while any distinction between the two is not perfectly clear, one seems to refer to real property and the other to movable possessions. Neither of these seems to refer to the simple personal possessions which one may have, such as the tools necessary to ply one's trade, or possessions such as books or cooking implements or basic house furnishings and the like. We will discuss this shortly. According to, Thema, according to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, katema means possessions. It was used of Greek writers to describe property, lands, estates, where hupoxis, a very close synonym, described possessions, goods, wealth, or property. Verse 46. And each day persevering 
with one accord in the temple and breaking bread at each house. This language is important. They partook of food in exaltation and in simplicity of heart, praising Yahweh and having goodwill toward all the people. And the prince added to those being saved daily in that place. The word charis, number 5485, is goodwill here in verse 47. According to Liddell and Scott, it is outward grace or favor, graciousness, kindness, goodwill, thankfulness, thanks, or gratitude. The word has a wide range of uses, right? It's, always, it's almost always grace in the King James Version. The word hawas is literally the whole. It's the word from which we get the English word whole, hawas. Strong's number 3650. Yet there are many situations in English where the word is more naturally rendered all, as the King James Version has done, approximately 66 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's misleading. Even rendered all here, having goodwill toward all the people, the meaning is still the whole people. And only this people where the body of Christians being formed is what is meant to be referenced. The Greeks don't word that word, that the Greeks didn't use that word laos to signify different nations of people in one place. That's why they use the word ethnos in the plural in those situations. Laos, singular or plural, was a body of a particular people. The clause containing these words may have alternately been rendered having thanks in regards to all the people, meaning all those people gathered there at that place, being added to the Christian body. Now the Codex Beze, rather strangely, has the word world rather than people. I'd like to discuss this, this phrase, and the prince added to those being saved daily in that place. The majority text adds the phrase to the assembly and reads the words in that place, a phrase which the King James Version is wanting as part of the sentence which follows, which actually begins chapter 3, right? The statement does not mean that all Israel was not saved on the cross of Christ, for indeed they were. In fact, it is all of Israel which is being saved. Rather, this statement infers that God was collecting to this Christian assembly those being saved out of the people in Judea, who were only a small portion of the Israelites among all of the other Israelites of the ancient dispersions, which were spread across the Oikumene at this time. All Israel are those being saved, and an assembly of them is growing here in this place. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you, which you have from Yahweh, and you are not your own? Whether you're a Christian or not. Indeed, you have been purchased for a price. So then you honor Yahweh in your body. 
I should say, whether you realize you're a Christian or not. The children of Israel sold themselves off in sin, as the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 52, and I will quote from verse 3. For us saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. Therefore, Yahweh would purchase them with his blood. And that is when their salvation occurred. As he says in Hosea chapter 13, from verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death, the dispersed children of Israel. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes, meaning that death and the grave don't have a choice. Paul refers to this explicitly in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where he mentions the assembly of Yahweh which he preserved for himself with his own blood. These Israelite people in Judea, who were among those who had been purchased by Christ, redeemed, were being collected to this one place in their acceptance of the word of God, and also turning themselves over to the community of the apostles, which we will discuss shortly. Here, along with Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, the example of true Christian communion or community is given. This must be compared to Josephus' account of nearly identical practices among the Essenes, which is found in his Wars of the Judeans in Book 2, Chapter 8 in Whiston's Numbering System, lines 119 through 122 in the Loeb Library Numbering System. And I quote, For there are three philosophical sects among the Judeans, Wiston said Jews, of course. The followers of the first of which are the Pharisees, of the second, the Sadducees, and the third sect, which pretends to a severer discipline, are called Essenes. These last are Judeans by birth and seem to have a greater affection for one another than the other sects have. Indeed. These Essenes reject pleasures as an evil, but esteem continence and the conquest over our passions to be a virtue. Of course, the need for self-control over our lusts was taught by both Peter and Paul. For example, 2 Peter 1.6 or 1 Corinthians 9.25. Back to Josephus. They neglect wedlock, but select other persons' children while they are pliable and fit for learning and esteem them to be of their own kindred and form them according to their own manners. They do not absolutely deny the fitness of marriage and the succession of mankind thereby continued, but they guard against the lascivious behavior of women and are persuaded that none of them preserve their fidelity to one man. 
These men are despisers of riches. And so very communicative, meaning so very sharing, as raises our admiration. Nor is there anyone to be found among them who has more than another. For it is a law among them that those who come to them must let what they have be common to the whole order. And this is exactly what we see the apostles doing here at the end of Acts chapter 2. Also described in Acts verses 32 through 37 of chapter 4. Insomuch that among them all there is no appearance of poverty or excessive riches, but everyone's possessions are intermingled with everyone's possessions. And so there is, as it were, one patrimony among all the brethren. Well, if they're all true Israelites, there should be but one patrimony among them, and that would be Christian. This does not mean that the first Christians were Essenes or that Essenes were Christians. Rather, it does not indicate that Essenes were attempting to live in a Christian-like manner. I'm sorry, it does indicate that Essenes were attempting to live in a Christian-like manner, possibly even before the advent of Christ. Josephus doesn't really tell us when the, the sect of the Essenes was begun. However, it was approximately two decades after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ when Josephus came of age and spent three years with the Essenes, which is how he knew them so intimately. And little is known of the Essenes outside of the writings of Josephus. Now, the historian says at line 10 of his autobiography, and I quote, and I was about 16 years old, and I had a mind to make trial of the several sects that were among us. These sects are three. The first is that of the Pharisees, the second that of the Sadducees, and the third that of the Essenes, as we have frequently told you. For I thought that by this means I might choose the best if I were once acquainted with them all. Josephus goes on to explain that from age 16, he spent three years with the Essenes, three years in the desert. Since he was born circa 37 AD, five years after the Passion of the Christ, his sojourn with the Essenes must have begun around 53 AD. And he gives no indication that the Essenes were Christians, and he would have no reason to hide as much. Around the same time also, we see that there were still followers of John the Baptist who knew nothing of the baptism of Christ, which is explained in Acts chapter 19. News in some circles traveled slowly in those days. There is, no, there, there is a need to further discuss other facets of the segment of Acts chapter 2. So I will repeat it here. And they were firmly adhering to the teaching of the ambassadors and in the fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many signs and wonders came through the ambassadors, through the apostles. 
And all those believing were in the same place and held all things in common, just like the Essenes were doing. And possessions and belongings, they sold and distributed them to all just as anyone had need. And each day, persevering with one accord in the temple and breaking bread at each house, they partook of food in exultation and in simplicity of heart, praising Yahweh and having goodwill toward all the people. And the prince added to those being saved daily in that place. The Greek word for fellowship in verse 42 is koinonia. Strong's number 2842. And the word translated in both the King James Version and in the Christian New Testament as common in verse 44 and in a similar passage in Acts chapter 2 verse 32 is coinus, Strong's number 2839. Coinus is an adjective And it's the word from which the noun koinonia is derived. Liddell and Scott define koinus as common, shared in common, as opposed to idios. Idios means private. We get our English word idiot from that. Common to or with another, common to all the people, public or general, among other definitions. The word koinonia is communion, association, partnership, or fellowship, according to Liddell and Scott. The Roman church, in the later centuries, distorted the meaning of the word communion in the minds of many people by using it to denote the mystery ritual the word does not describe any ritual in the New Testament. Rather, it intends, as its primary dictionary definition states, the act or an instance of sharing, which is the first definition of communion, according to the American Heritage College Dictionary. The meaning of the word doesn't change because sometimes the King James translation and others translate koinonia as communion. The word koinonia is found 19 times in the New Testament and in the King James Version. It is communion on four of those occasions. Here it is correctly fellowship. The true mystery of communion is not possessed by the Roman church or any other. The real mystery is why so few realize that the body and blood of Christ are actually those Israelites sitting around the table. The word communion is related to, word, to the words common, community, and also, unfortunately, communism. Here in Acts chapter 2, and, and Acts chapter 4, where it's also described, is the model Christian community described in brief. And it is something which has never endured in our history. The Christians share all of their abundance in common with their brethren. Now, this is certainly not Marxism. The proceeds of those, those possessions and belongings which these Christians sold and distributed among their fellows did not represent every last article of their belongings or, or their means of sustenance. It is obvious from the context of the passage 
that they still had houses which they lived in, where it says that they were breaking bread at every house. They also obviously still maintained their method of making their living, whether they worked at a business or a trade, or they would not at all have been able to eat. Acts chapter 4 provides somewhat more insight into what is meant here, and I will read from verse 32. And the multitude of those believing were of one heart and soul. And no one reckoned any of his belongings to be his own, but everything was common to them. That's the message also concerning property among our Israelite brethren, which Christ transmitted at the Sermon on the Mount. And with great power, the ambassadors delivered the testimony of the resurrection of Prince Joshua, and great favor was with them all. Indeed, neither was there any deficiency among them, for as many as were owners of farms or houses selling them brought the proceeds of the things sold and set it by the feet of the ambassadors, and they distributed to each just as any had need. These descriptions sound very much like the way of life which Josephus had attributed to the Essenes. These people joined this particular Christian community, as Josephus explains to the Essenes, of the Essenes. And upon their joining, they turned both themselves and their property over to the commonwealth of that community. They were also putting their own future well-being into the hands of that community, handing over their property. This was also, ostensibly, in return for the Christian instruction which they were receiving from the apostles, and those committed to the message of the gospel would therefore work for the continued propagation of that message, such as a leap of faith which these people undertook, and they undertook it voluntarily, handing themselves over to that community. To take such a leap of faith is noble. To put your faith in the hands of a community of your Christian brethren is noble. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that while this is certainly what had occurred here in Judea after this first Pentecost, and even though communion with one's fellow Christian brethren is an obligation that all Christians should meet, it is not a compulsion in this life. It is not required of Christians to live in this manner, which is described here. Rather, in Scripture, there are also many examples of early Christian men who continued to own their own property and who remained self-reliant in the world, certainly not self-reliant apart from God, but self-reliant apart from other Christians. And yet, they were still Christians or became Christians. Cornelius the Roman was one such individual, and he was evidently a man of considerable estate. It is not recorded that Peter required anything of him, and he didn't abandon his estate to go join these Christians. Simon the Tanner was another, whose house is by the sea, Acts chapter 10, verse 9, and Peter stayed in his home. But he did not demand the sale or surrender of his home, and Simon continued in his home 
after Peter departed. Another example is Philemon. Philemon was the recipient of a letter of Paul. Philemon was a man of estate. He was a slave owner. He was also a Christian. And while Paul asserted a right to require things of him, Paul required nothing from him, but instead asked that he voluntarily consider releasing Onesiphorus, his slave, from his bonds of slavery. Paul asked that as a favor. Paul also had taken up a collection from among the assemblies of Greece on behalf of the Christians of Judea who were being persecuted by the Jews. Doing this, he encouraged those assemblies to contribute whatever they could, making it a point to stress that they were not being compelled to give, yet they were being asked to give voluntarily and sincerely. This is described in his epistle to, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. With all of this, we see that there is a balance. We have Christians committed to a community, and therefore, upon entering that community, they were, that they were expected to surrender any wealth they had to the community. Yet we see Christians who continue to fulfill a role in society. All of them had their place. All of them had their contribution and their sacrifices to make on behalf of Yahweh their God. At the restoration of our race, when there is no more usury, when there is no more Jew, when the devils when the devils are done away with, at the restoration of our race, it is evident that all Christians shall be committed to one community, for there will only be one city of God. It is urging to the Greek Christians to give from their wealth in order to sustain the destitute Christians at Jerusalem. Even though their giving was voluntary, Paul used as a model the Israelites of the Exodus, who were sustained in the desert with manna. At 2 Corinthians 8.15, Paul quoted from Exodus chapter 16, where he said, As it is written, He that gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Here is the passage from the Exodus, from the King James Version, from verse 15 of chapter 16. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, It is manna. For they did not know what it was. They called it manna because manna was from, derived from a word, a Hebrew word which meant a portion. That's all it means, a portion. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which Yahweh is giving you to eat. This is the thing which Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, an omer for every man. According to the number of your persons, take ye every man for them which are in his tents. In other words, they divided it equally, an 
omer for every man, no matter, regardless of how much each one of them was able to distribute, to, to collect when they found it. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. And when they did meet it out with an omer, measure it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. The Israelites of the Exodus, like those first Christians in Judea, which we see here in Acts chapter 2, were a community which was ostensibly learning to rely upon one another for their lives, to love their brethren. But again, not apart from Yahweh their God, who was their true provider. For such a community to share all things equitably is a survival mechanism, a matter of necessity. As the word of Yahweh said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, those of Israel who acquire wealth are blessed by God in such a manner so that they dispense of it. I'm sorry, I lost my mouse. They dispense of it towards the furtherance of his kingdom. Likewise, apart from the shelter of such communities, Christian Israelites should nevertheless look to provide for one another's needs. And they should be happy to do so, as Paul told the Corinthians. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity, meaning out of compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And with this, we shall commence with Acts chapter 3. Verse 1. Then Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth. The majority text begins this verse, and in that place, Peter and John went up to the temple. The Codex Beze has, and in those days, Peter and John went up to the temple at evening at the hour of prayer, the ninth. The ninth hour began about 3 p.m. The first hour of the day, beginning at sunrise, or generally about 6 a.m. Verse 2. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they set, those carrying him said, each day, by that door of the temple called Horias, for which to beg charity from those going into the temple. The word Horias is a transliteration of a Greek word, Strong's number 5611, which means beautiful, among other things. Here the word is used as a proper noun, a name for the gate. And in Greek, not in Hebrew. Or certainly the Hebrew name may have been given. There is much evidence throughout Scripture that Greek was common in Judea. There is also much evidence throughout archaeology 
that Greek was common in Judea, in their inscriptions, on their coins, on their buildings, even where it was not the primary language of the native peoples. Verse 3, who seeing Peter and John going into, into enter into the temple, asked to receive charity. And Peter, gazing at him with John, said, look at us. So he engaged with them, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold belong not to me, but that which I have, this I give to you. In the name of Yahshua Christ the Nazorian, walk. In the words of Peter in Acts chapter 10, we see a reference only to Yahshua the Nazorian, Yahshua the Nazarene, if you will. Or as the King James Version has it, Jesus of Nazareth. Here in Acts 4.10, both times the words being attributed to Peter, the fuller description, Yahshua Christ the Nazarene appears, which is what which is an indication that Luke had received this account and the historical perception of Acts insists that he did receive this account from someone else. Yet even in the words of Paul in Acts 22.8, Joshua is said to refer to himself with a simple phrase, after the King James Version, Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul uses it again in Acts 26.9. Therefore, it is not an insult to refer to Christ merely as Jesus of Nazareth, but the disbelieving Judeans, the Jews at least initially, refused to use the terms Christ or Christian. The Codices Alexandrinus, Ephraimi Siri, and the majority text and verse 6 of the exclamation, Arise and Walk. The Christogenian New Testament follows the Codices, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus, and also agrees with the Codex Beze in this instance. It's not important. The man was begging for money, because being lame, he could not support himself, of course. Here the inference is that the, healing gift of, the gift of healing in God is far greater than any amount of money. Isaiah chapter 35, from verse 4. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. This is talking about the end time, not about the first manifestation of Christ. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and a thirsty land, springs of water, in the habitation of dragons. How apt! Where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. If we see these things after the first appearance of Christ, we shall see much greater things at his return. Acts chapter 3, verse 7. 
and grabbing his right hand, he raised him. Then immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And springing up, he stood and walked about and entered into the temple with them, walking about and leaping and praising Yahweh. And all the people saw him walking about and praising Yahweh. Then they recognized him, that it was he sitting for charity at the Horias gate of the temple, the beautiful gate of the temple. Beautiful being. A proper name for that particular gate. There were more than one. And they were filled with amazement and astonishment at that which happened to him. That upon his holding on to Peter and John, all the people were amazed and ran to them on the porch, which is called Solomon's, the porch of Solomon. The Codex Beze reads verse 11 like this, and upon Peter and John going out, they ran out together seizing them, meaning the people ran out together seizing them. And being amazed, they stood amazed on the porch, which is called Solomon's. And yes, the verb is repeated twice in that manuscript. I only cite it here to, to, to show some of the problems with some of the manuscripts. The Codex Beze has a lot of problems. Concerning that structure known in the New Testament as Solomon's porch, we see it mentioned in John chapter 10, verse 23. In his translation of the writings of Josephus, William Whiston rendered this noun, stoa, stoa being a porch, as cloister, wherever it appears. Josephus calls this structure the royal stoa, and therefore in Whiston's translation, it is the royal, cloist, the royal cloister where this portion of the temple is described. For instance, in Antiquities, book 15, line 393. Verse 12, and seeing it, Peter responded to the people, men, Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if our own power or piety made him to walk? This is a good example. Whenever we do marvelous things, or whenever we even do things which are common, yet beneficial. We must always give the glory to God and thank him for what things were done through us. Psalm chapter 86, verse 10. For thou art great and does wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Teach me thy way, O Yahweh. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Yahweh my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. Acts 3.13 The God of Abraham, Peter still speaking, and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has honored his servant Yahshua, whom you indeed handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate, who determined to release him. And the perspective of those words is quite important.
The Nestle land, Novum Testamentum Grece, follows the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, and Beze, and has the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The text of the Christogonian New Testament here agrees with the Codex Vaticanus. The surviving fragment of the 5th manus- century manuscript known as O236, and the majority text, I cite this because whenever the oldest and best manuscripts diverge, which the codices Vaticanus and Sinaiticus do here, it's difficult to determine which may be the more reliable reading. The translator, this translator, me, I would think it foolish to insist that one or the other must always be followed, which is why translations are always best accompanied with copious notes. This series of podcasts will also serve as a representation of my more important notes on my translation. The phrase, his servant Yahshua, may have been rendered his son Yahshua. The Greek word pahis is literally a child. But often, even in the New Testament, it's used metaphorically of a servant in Peter's narratives, he consistently absolves Pontius Pilate of any guilt in the matter of Christ, and he lays the blame for the crime of the crucifixion at the feet of the entire nation of the Judeans. Whether individuals within the nation were consenting, were culpable, or not, Peter lays the blame at the feet of the entire nation throughout these, these discourses which are recorded from him in the book of Acts. Therefore, neither Pontius Pilate nor the Romans can ever be justly blamed for the murder of Christ. The gospel denies that. It denies it explicitly that Pilate is at fault. He's consistently absolved. Of course, the Jews, when you listen to their media, try to tell a different story. Verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous man, meaning Christ, of course, and rejected and requested a murderous man, meaning Barabbas, to be pardoned for you. Then you killed the founder of life, whom Yahweh raised from among the dead, of whom we are witnesses. Yahshua Christ is the founder of life. The Greek word archegos is an adjective meaning beginning or originating. As a substantive, as a noun, like it is used here, it is a founder a prince, a chief, a first cause, or an originator. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Yahshua took credit for being the planter of the wheat, the founder of the wheat, and therefore he must be Yahweh God himself incarnate as one of his own creation as a man, as so many other scriptures insist. 
verse 16. And by the faith of his name, he whom you see and know, meaning the crippled man, his name, meaning Christ, has strengthened. And the faith which is through him, meaning Christ, has given to him, the lame man, this soundness before all of you. And now, brethren, I know that you acted ignorantly, just as also your rulers. Peter informing the nation whom he blames for the death of Christ that they acted ignorantly and that their rulers acted ignorantly. First, we'll talk about the Israelites. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I quote from verse 12, And I thank, and I'm quoting from the King James Version, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, Paul talking about himself, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul explaining that he obtained mercy from Christ because his persecution of Christians was done in ignorance. Peter says here that both the Israelites and their rulers, and we know that their rulers, the high priests, and many of the chief priests, and many of the, the rulers of the people were actually Edomites, right? And they were not Israelites. Peter says here that both the Israelites and their rulers acted ignorantly. And this is certainly true. Peter does not necessarily have pity for or seek to convert them all. He's only addressing Israelites in his discourse. Whether they were vessels of destruction, Romans chapter 9, those children of the devil who do the works of their father, John chapter 8, or whether they were vessels of mercy, those children of Israel who may have thought that they were doing righteously, like Paul, but who were actually sinning grievously, they had nevertheless acted in ignorance of the truth, no matter which side of that line they were on. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I quote from verse 6. Now we speak wisdom among the accomplished. This is the Christogenian New Testament. But wisdom not of this age, nor of those governing this age, who are being done away with, the princes of this world. Rather, we speak wisdom of Yahweh, that had been hidden in the mystery, which Yahweh had predetermined before the ages for our honor which not one of the governors of this age has known, since if they had known, they would not have crucified the authority of that honor. 
even the rulers of the Judeans. Even the Edomite Sadducees acted in ignorance. But just as it is written, things which I did not see and ear did not hear and came not into the heart of man, those things Yahweh has prepared for them that love him. Yet to us, Yahweh reveals them through the Spirit. For the Spirit inquires of all things, even the depths of Yahweh. So we see Peter is right. According to Paul, or Paul corroborates Peter's words, regardless of how we look at it, they agree that even those wicked people, those princes of this world, those governing this age, who were being done away with, as Paul states explicitly in 1 Corinthians 2.6, even they acted in ignorance. Verse 18. But Yahweh, the things which he announced beforehand through the mouths of all the prophets for his Christ to suffer has fulfilled thusly because of the ignorance of men the design of God is seen through to its end. Therefore you must repent and turn towards that which blots out your errors. Even Israelites who agreed or who took part in deicide, the murder of Christ is deicide, would be forgiven by turning to Christ. All Israel shall indeed be saved. Only Christ blots out our errors. He is the fulfillment of the law. And the law did not keep us from sin. Colossians chapter 1, from verse 9. For this reason, we also, from the day in which we heard, do not cease from praying and requesting on your behalf that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, to walk worthily, of the prince in all complacence, obedience, in every good deed bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of Yahweh, with all power being strengthened according to the might of his honor for all endurance and long-suffering with joy, being thankful to the Father who qualifies us for that share of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who has rescued us from the authority of darkness, and instead gave us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption, the dismissal of errors. And Colossians chapter 2, And you being dead in transgressions and in the foreskin of your flesh, you he made alive together with him, forgiving us all those transgressions, having wiped out the handwriting against us in the ordinances which were opposed to us. Even this he is taken out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Christ is that which blots out our errors, if indeed we're Israelites, 
If or not, it doesn't matter. Acts chapter 3, verse 20. That the times of relief, and I'm going to concentrate on this phrase for a few minutes, that the times of relief may come from the presence of Yahweh, meaning the second manifestation of Christ, the second advent. From the presence of Yahweh, and he would send him determined for you, Christ Yahshua, God incarnate, whom, in, whom it is indeed necessary for heaven to receive until the times of restoration of all which Yahweh had spoken through the mouths of the saints, his prophets from of old. The restoration of all things has to be understood through the mouths of the prophets. These promised times of relief represent the restoration of the kingdom of God promised to the children of Israel. This is the same thing which Paul is explaining with or of the rest. Rest. Rest meaning a period of peace and tranquility. This is the same thing which Paul is explaining of the rest of God, which he makes an illustration of in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. This promise of times of relief. I will read Hebrews chapter 3 from verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the day, the rebellion in the day of trial in the desert, where your fathers had made trial and scrutiny and saw my works forty years, on which account I had been angry with this race, and said, Always do they wander in heart, and they have not known my ways. So I have sworn in my wrath whether they should enter into my rest. You beware, brethren, that at no time will there be in any one of you a wicked heart of disbelief in which is revolt from Yahweh who lives. Rather, encourage yourselves each and every day, so long as this day bears a name, that not any of you are hardened in deceit of wrongdoing. For we have become partners of the Christ, if indeed to begin with we possess that of the assurance steadfast until the end. In respect of which it is said, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For some hearing had rebelled, though not all of those coming out of Egypt with Moses. And with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who failed, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did he swear would not enter into his rest, if not to those who would not comply? And we see that they had not been able to enter because of disbelief. From Hebrews 4, verse 1, Therefore we should fear that at no time a promise being left to enter into his rest, that rest is the times of relief which Peter mentions here in Acts, 
any one of you would seem to have fallen short. For even we have been announcing the good message among ourselves, just as they also. But the word of the report did not benefit those not being united in the faith with those who heard. For we who are believing enter into that rest just as he spoke. So I have sworn in my wrath whether they should enter into my rest. And indeed, those works have been done from the foundation of the society. Somewhere he spoke in this manner concerning the seventh day. And Yahweh rested at the seventh day from all of his works. And with this again, whether they should enter into my rest, Paul is equating the two. Yahweh is in that period of rest now. He is waiting for his children to finally comply so that they too may enter into that rest, into that times of relief that Peter is talking about here. And with this again, whether they should enter into my rest, from verse 6 of Hebrews 4, therefore since it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly heard the good message did not enter in on account of incredulity. Again, he determines a certain day in David saying, meaning in the Psalms, today, after so long a time, just as it is said beforehand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, Paul referring to Joshua, the son of Nun, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken concerning another day after that. So a period of rest remains for the people of Yahweh. He who is entering into his rest, he would also rest from his works as Yahweh from his own. These times of relief which Peter mentions here are the very rest which Paul explains to Hebrews as awaiting the children of Israel, their restoration in the kingdom of God which they failed to achieve in the days of Joshua, as Paul explains. Today, Christian Israel still awaits the fulfillment of that very promise. Two Chronicles 7.14 If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Acts 3.22 While Moses said, that Yahweh your God shall raise up a prophet for you from among your brethren, even as me, of him you shall hear 
according to all things, as many as he shall speak to you. Translation notes. The Codex Beze has, while Moses said to our fathers, the majority text, for while Moses said to the fathers. Of course, the older manuscripts don't have those extra words. Here in verses 22 and 23, Peter is paraphrasing Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. And here they are from the King James Version. Yahweh thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. This is Moses speaking to the assembly. Unto him you shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of Yahweh thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh thy God, my God, neither let me see his great fire any more that I die not. And Yahweh said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, meaning Moses. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, which we just read, is a dual prophecy. It speaks both of Joshua the Old Testament prophet who succeeded Moses, and of Yahshua Christ, who has the same given name, and who has himself become the metaphorical successor to the laws of Moses. Moses was replaced by a man named Joshua, or Yahshua, on the personal level, and on the ethereal level, where the laws of Moses were replaced by the faith in Christ. And it shall be, Acts 3.23, that every soul which would not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people from Hebrews 5.9. He has become, meaning Christ, the author of eternal deliverance to all those who obey him. Although in the resurrection, I can't imagine any of the children of Israel not obeying him. <laughs> the gospel. The gospel is that which separates the wheat from the tares from the very beginning. Verse 24. Yet even all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, also announced these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which Yahweh arranged with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the clans of the earth be blessed. With these words, it, was, it must not be forgotten that Peter is not merely addressing Judeans and their converts here. We have to read carefully through Acts chapter 2. Judeans and their converts, which were present in the beginning of this chapter, 
and are addressed from Acts chapter 2, verse 10 and 2, verse 14. But here, Peter is specifically addressing Israelites from Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and here in chapter 3. Peter is addressing Israelites regardless of who else is present in these last two discourses. It doesn't matter who else is present. If you're not one of the sons of the prophets, if you're not one of the sons of those people who had a covenant passed down from their fathers, Jeremiah 31, 31, the day will come when they will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If you're not one of those people, you don't somehow become one of them here. That's not what Peter's saying. He's addressing Israelites. You are the sons of the prophets. Now the promise to Abraham that in your offspring shall all the clans of the earth be blessed is found in various forms in Genesis chapters 12, 22, 26, and 28. The Greek word patria here, from which we get words like patriarch, patria is lineage, pedigree by the father's side, a clan, a house, a family, according to Liddell and Scott. It is rendered clans here, being in the plural. And an attempt to stress the fact that each clan or family has a common lineage with the others, as is the context of the Bible. Only the families of Genesis chapter 10, the Adamic descendants of Noah, are intended in the promises to Abraham. After listing all of the descendants of Noah, Genesis 10.32 states, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. No man has any right to expand on this listing of the families of the earth or the nations divided in the earth in order to attempt to include any race of people not originally listed in Genesis chapter 10. The non-Adamic races. There aren't any Chinese people in Genesis chapter 10. There aren't any African blacks in Genesis chapter 10. Regardless of the fact that much later in history, some of the, those nations were overrun with blacks and became mixed. The non-Adamic races have no part in Genesis chapter 10, and therefore they have no part in the blessing to Abraham recorded only two chapters later in our Bibles in Genesis chapter 12. They are not one of those Adamic families by whom the nations were divided, which are referenced in Deuteronomy 32.8, when Yahweh separated the sons of Adam when Yahweh divided the nations of Adam, he left the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. We discussed this at great length. And our exposition of the book of Amos in part six, 
where we discussed Amos 3.2. In that passage, Yahweh states to the children of Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Likewise, those Israelites alone comprise Peter's intended audience here. Acts chapter 3, verse 26. To you first, Yahweh, raising his servant, sent him blessing you by which to turn each back from your wickedness. It is evident that most of these Israelites in Judea are of the tribe of Judah, Peter being in Jerusalem. They are of the house of Judah, even if they are from Levi or from Benjamin, the kingdom being divided, parts of Levi, and all that part of Benjamin extant in Palestine at the time, were left with the house of Judah. To you first, Yahweh, raising his servant, sent him blessing you, by which to turn each back from your wickedness. Out of all Israel, and there are many dispersed Israelites, of course, who are not in Judea, who Peter is not addressing. Out of all Israel, the word of God says in Zechariah chapter 12, at verse 7, Yahweh also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. Yahweh willing, we shall expound on this topic in the later parts of the book of Acts and the discussion of Paul's injunction to go into Macedonia to preach the gospel before he was permitted to preach it in Asia, which he did later. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night. I will present my paper, The Wicked Black Gentry, with some, with, with some other related material. I will be here next Friday, Yahweh willing, with the presentation of Acts chapter 4. Praise Yahweh and good night.